so welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast and uh, in our latest episode we are returning to the world of ETFs or exchange traded funds um, and this time we have um, an ETF manager on the program. Um, I know we've discussed ETFs previously but uh, we thought it would be useful to get someone who's actually responsible for managing an ETF and to that end we have Austin Graff who's a portfolio manager um, with True Shares in the U.S., uh, so welcome, welcome to the show, Austin. Thank you. It's good to be here. So um, to to start off, um, can you give us a little bit of uh, background on True Shares itself, uh, the company, and what you guys are up to? Sure. So True Shares is an ETF manager that focuses on actively managed thematic and outcome-oriented strategies. Uh, True Shares partners with sub advisors who have deep expertise and real-world investment experience uh, managing truly active strategies. And they offer these strategies in an ETF structure because it provides investors improved liquidity, uh, tax efficiency, and transparency relative to other structures. And TrueShares is kind of a natural home uh, for the low-volatility equity income ETF that I manage mainly because it's a concentrated, actively managed portfolio. So for many, for many people, when they think of an ETF, they think of something like, for example, a vanilla exchange-traded fund which tracks the FTSE 100 index or the S&P 500. And the whole point of this is it's, it's, it's nice and cheap, it's nice and transparent, um, and it does what it says on the tin. It just follows the index. Now, in the US particularly, and, and starting here in, in Europe as well, um, we're starting to see the advent of, of what, what you've referred to already as the active ETF, as opposed to the passive ETF, which is an ETF following an index. So an active ETF, what we're really talking about here, is something that uh, there is an element of, as you say, portfolio management. Can you quickly just describe the difference there? What's the difference between what you're doing and, say, you know, an iShares S&P 500 tracker is doing? Yeah, so so I think you highlighted it pretty well. Uh, the primary difference is the active ETF is more of what I would call a dynamic portfolio with a portfolio manage, manager determining which securities to own and, and when to buy and sell those securities with the intention of outperforming a benchmark, while the passive ETFs are essentially benchmark vehicles that provide you the return of a benchmark minus a small fee uh, for managing the ETF. But from a structural perspective, they're actually very similar. You get the same tax benefits, you get the same liquidity benefits. In many cases, you get the same transparency benefits. Uh, but in the U.S., there has been some experimenting with uh, semi-transparent ETFs, so they look a little bit more like mutual funds, but to the extent you're not looking at a semi-transparent ETF, you're looking at a fully transparent ETF, you get the same transparency that you would get uh, in a passive ETF with actives. And, and with the semi-transparent ETFs, um, I'm guessing that some of the enthusiasm for that is because some managers don't want the market to see exactly what there is sitting there in the fund, basically. It, exactly. If you're one of the large mutual fund managers... Um, and, and you're, you're managing tens or if not hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, if you make a move 
in a trade, you don't necessarily want everyone to know what you're doing because it might take you multiple days um, to execute a, uh, a a portfolio change. Um, so, so many of the larger uh, fund managers that are entering the space, call it an, a Fidelity, a capital group, or a, a DFA, are, are looking at both kind of fully transparent or semi-transparent solutions. Um, often they'll probably be gearing more towards the semi-transparent because they want the flexibility to move around the portfolio without everyone kind of knowing what's going on on a, a daily basis. And, and the ETF that you're responsible for, is that is that fully transparent or, or semi? It's fully transparent. This is actually um, a, a, uh, an ETF that follows a dividend-oriented um, strategy. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about the the sort of value add there for investors and and um, I don't know how familiar you are with the UK investment trust sector over here but there are some listed investment companies that that follow a similar kind of approach where they're investing in the higher yielding stocks because investors like them because of the income basically is that is that effectively what you're doing doing here with your fund yeah, there's there's a couple of kind of elements to, to break down there. The difference between kind of dividend ETFs and the UK high yield investment trusts are primarily attributed to uh, the structure of the vehicles. ETFs are open ended vehicles that provide investors with direct exposure to the underlying holdings uh, in, in the ETF, while the UK investment trusts, um, at least to the best of my knowledge, are primarily closed end funds. Uh, with a fixed number of shares outstanding, meaning when you buy them, you're, you can either purchase them at a premium or a discount to net asset value. So that can create opportunities, but it can also create risk because you're not technically buying a direct portfolio. Um, you're, you're buying something that looks like the portfolio. So, so that's, I guess, the difference between dividend ETFs and the UK high yield um, investment trust. But from a dividend ETF perspective, we think it's really interesting in the current environment, uh, primarily just because of where interest rates are right now. So in the US, the S&P 500 dividend yield and the 10-year um, the ten-year yield are about the same place at about 1.35%. Historically, the dividend yield has been about 2 to 3% lower than the, the 10-year treasury yield. So so from a valuation perspective, if you're just looking at dividend yield, it's it's really attractive today. Um, but that's kind of the the basic high level why people would want to own dividends. Um, there's actually more when you dig under the surface. Um, it's more than just getting kind of an income stream today. It's also the fact that many dividend ETFs also provide uh, dividend growth over time. So if you think about that relative to uh, more of a fixed income security, uh, you could see your your income increasing per share uh, throughout time. And then then also you get uh, the potential for equity upside. And, and this is a big deal because uh, historically dividends have played a pretty significant component in equity, equity returns, uh, even in the US. I think most people kind of have written dividends off given the last five to 10 years of bullish uh, market appreciation. Uh, but if you look over the past 30 years, dividends have accounted for 
over half of the returns of the S&P 500. And, and then looking back over the past 25 years, if you look for companies that have paid above average dividend yields, uh, they've considerably outperformed the market. Um, so, so above average dividend payers, so this would be just companies that are paying a higher yield than the S&P 500, which today is a pretty low um, hurdle at 1.35%. But if you were to own those companies for the last 25 years, you would have generated a return of about 13% a year um, compared to the S&P 500 return of about 9.5% per year. So you've picked up about 350 basis points um, on an annual basis just by owning above average dividend payers. And I think another really interesting comparison is if we compare it to the NASDAQ. Um, given the run of the NASDAQ over the past, call it five to 10 years, as we've seen interest rates declining pretty substantially, um, dividend payers still outperformed over the last 25 years. So it's that 13% of the above average dividend payers uh, compares to about 11.5% return on the NASDAQ over a similar time frame. So, so when we look back over extended periods of time, uh, dividends have outperformed pretty considerably. Uh, just the last kind of five years or so, that they've fallen behind a little bit. I was going to ask you this later on, but actually from what you were saying, I thought it might be worth introducing this now, and that is the, the sort of inflation picture in the US and indeed further afield. The, the, there's been lots of speculation about what you know the Fed's inflation um, projections versus um, what is really likely to happen. And I know a lot of investors are worried about the inflation picture. And then, you know, at the same time, as you've already mentioned, yields from government bonds, what cash is paying right now, that's all in the basement. So there is um, more and more focus on this whole um, dividend yield picture. Do you think that that is going to rep represent an opportunity for for this kind of strategy that you're running? Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty interesting opportunity right now. Um, historically, higher dividend paying names have tended to be kind of classified as bond-like equities. So if you think about sectors that, that tend to pay higher yields, they're, they're usually people think about utilities or consumer staples um, that fall into to that category. And the pandemic associated with COVID created an interesting dynamic in the market that we haven't necessarily seen historically. As the tenure in early 2020 went from about 1.92% down to about 50 basis points in the first half of 2020, um, historically, the bond-like sectors in the equity market would tend to outperform. And that's not what we saw in the first half of 2020. And that's not what we've seen kind of since the, the COVID uh, pandemic started. We've actually seen those sectors underperform, and we've seen technology and some of the growth sectors outperform. And I think a lot of people might be sitting here thinking, well, if interest rates go up from here, I would expect many of these bond-like equity sectors to underperform. And we just don't have that view. We, we believe that since we saw the tech space considerably outperform and we saw 
um, some of these more bond-like equity uh, sectors underperform, we think there's a decent potential to generate attractive income from these dividend-paying sectors while also getting equity outperformance as interest rates go up. Um, I'm not a macro guy, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you whether I think rates are going to go up tomorrow or next quarter or even next year. But from a risk-reward perspective, it does seem like over a three to five-year time frame, it's going to be hard for rates to sit much lower than where they are today um, over an extended time frame. You talk a little bit um, with some of some of your um, uh, marketing literature for the the fund about uh, absolute dividend yield. Can you explain what that is, um, how that works in practice? So, so absolute yield is just kind of what we're what the the yield on the portfolio is today. When when we think about the absolute dividend, so so there's relative dividend and absolute dividend. Relative dividend is kind of saying. What's the yield relative to other income options? Um, we, we feel the yield today at about 3% is extremely attractive relative to other options in the market. We also think on an absolute basis, it's, it's awfully attractive as well as it provides um, investors with a decent return on their investment while also potentially receiving upside from capital appreciation over time. And uh, you are fairly focused on deals in the market at the moment. Um, I know you put out a note, um, I think it was a few weeks ago, on the Norton LifeLock, a vast um, antivirus system deal. Could you give us some colour around some of the you know, the US deals that you've seen recently or, or that are uh, potentially ongoing that you like from a cash flow perspective? Yes. Yeah, so, so in the U.S., it's currently a pretty interesting M&A market. Uh, one of the deals that you referenced is, is the Norton LifeLock Avast transaction. Uh, we like the transaction mainly because you have two companies that generate really attractive recurring cash flows, and they share that cash flow with investors in, in the form of a dividend. Um, both companies were relatively cheap. Uh, leading into the transaction, which likely uh, allowed for a transaction to happen. Um, but but we like the transaction because we think both companies were kind of in a transition from being antivirus software companies to being more cybersecurity focused. And, and, and the market may have been missing that. So the antivirus software market is somewhat commoditized as you have uh, players like Microsoft giving away the software for free. And I think that many market participants saw that and viewed both Avast and LifeLock as having a dying business. But both companies have, have kind of repositioned themselves um, as being cybersecurity uh, experts. In Avast side of things, they're more of a global business focused on a freemium market, while on the LifeLock side, you've got a U.S.-focused subscription business. Um, when you combine those two together, uh, you get the, the revenue synergies of marketing your subscription business to freemium customers while also um, combining R&D uh, departments that are primarily focused on the same thing, trying to stay ahead of cyber criminals. So we think there's a potential to both increase the top line while also um, 
while also saving some money on the bottom line. Uh, from, from a vast perspective, they were spending about 50% of their cost of goods sold on R&D, actually. So if you think about the synergies, if, if LifeLock was spending a similar amount, um, you should be able to, to generate a decent amount of, of savings there while providing a, a similar, if not better, uh, level of service. Another deal that happened over the summer that we find particularly interesting, mainly because it seems like the market might be viewing it differently, is the AT&T spinoff of Warner Media Assets. So this is a reverse Morse trust transaction where AT&T is separating Warner Media Assets and then merging with Discovery, um, which is a, a, a media company in the U.S., and then they're distributing the pro rata shares to AT&T shareholders. This is an interesting transaction because the narrative around the deal has been that AT&T, known as a dividend aristocrat, is cutting their dividend, uh, which is true. They are reducing their dividend, but they're reducing it somewhat pro rata with the amount of operating income that's leaving the company, which should be viewed as a relatively, I would say, beneficial thing for investors. Uh, however, you have many uh, headlines out there stating that the dividend drop uh, demonstrates the instability in the business, and therefore it's not something that should be owned. Um, in reality, this transaction allows AT&T to focus on their two main businesses, mainly fiber and 5G, while also paying a relatively attractive dividend uh, north of 4% uh, per share. Uh, so we think it provides the opportunity for uh, mid to high single digit growth while also um, providing a dividend to shareholders um, so, so that they can earn earn while they wait for the, the story to play out. The We had obviously in, in, in both the US and the UK um, last year, there was um, a lot of companies suspended their dividends and now we're seeing them coming back now and starting to pay dividends again. Um in the states, you've still got the sort of, um, and in fact here as well, the, the COVID is is um, spreading again and the rates picking up. Um, do you anticipate? I mean, what do you anticipate companies are going to do, presuming that there isn't like another complete lockdown um, and that this can just be more sort of regional restrictions or tactical restrictions in place? Do you think that there that U.S. companies, S and P five hundred companies, will be able to? sustain the sort of dividends that we were used to in 2018 2019 yeah I, th I think so i mean i think there was just a a research piece out of strategus today that highlighted that s p 500 companies have 1.9 trillion of cash on their balance sheets today which is up there with the highest of all time uh, and so barring a complete shutdown of global economies i would expect most companies to be able to to maintain their dividends. Now, that doesn't say that kind of the the tail of the whip in reopening stocks are going to be able to maintain their dividends. Most of them have already cut their dividends and have not reinstated them because they don't have a stable kind of stream of cash flow coming from them to, to pay that dividend. But your traditional or your your blue chip companies focused on more stable um, 
end market should be fine paying out their dividends, especially with the, the amount of cash on balance sheets today and the ability to borrow with where the interest rate environment is. Um, there's a lot of liquidity out there supporting uh, companies' balance sheets right now, allowing them to essentially allocate capital however they see best. Um, if that's in the form of a dividend, that's great. If they have other growth opportunities, that's, that's great as well. And from from your perspective, you're obviously a professional money manager. Um, when a company, there's there's sort of an anticipation that the company is going to pay dividend X, and you can see that you know from the last numbers they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. What's your reaction when you, if they pay less than that? I mean, obviously the market reaction is frequently people sell the shares. Is that is that do you? Do you sell the shares? Do you just hang on and, you know, if the rest of the company looks solid, you'll ex- hope that they're going to have a better dividend in the next in the next six months? Or or do you actually get in touch with the company directly like some hedge funds do and, and jump up and down and make a fuss? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. So there's a difference between the dividend kind of process in the UK and many European countries versus the dividend process in the US. In the US, companies tend to announce their annual dividend once a year and then pay it out quarterly. In, in many European countries um, and in the UK, you often see companies announce a one-time dividend or announce that they're paying two dividends a year, which creates some lumpiness in those payments versus what we see in the US. Um, if it's a company that has a lot of cash flow and there's no justification for um, reducing the dividend, my process would be to get on the phone with the company and try to understand what's going on. I'm not necessarily going to jump up and down and, and scream at them, try to tell them that they need to run their business differently. Uh, there are plenty of companies out there for me to own, and I don't need to to be trying to force my, my views on a company. We tend to be looking for companies that want to pay that distribution and want to grow that distribution over time because they understand that shareholders uh, value it and they also understand that it holds their feet to the fire on capital allocation. Uh, so they're not just trying to grow for the sake of growth or buy back shares at you know outrageous valuations. Um, they're they're sharing in some of the uh, the earnings potential of the company uh, with shareholders. And you mentioned earlier that, that obviously a lot of uh, big U.S. companies are flush with um, cash at the moment. Um, we're seeing over here like quite a few um, big private equity firms coming along and, and buying or trying to buy U.K. companies. Do you think that there's a sort of similar situation with with big companies in the U.S. because they've got these war chests, they're going out there and more likely to be um, looking for prospects to acquire, and that that's what's fueling this M&A activity you've been looking at? It's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what's leading to the M&A situation, but but I think there are a couple of things that we can zero in on. First, I think it's the liquidity that you just referenced. You know, there are a lot of big companies that have a lot of excess cash. And by the way, if you were to go talk to, you know, JP Morgan or some other bank, they would love to be lending even more to these companies if the companies would take it. Um, And that's just an indication of kind of where the market is uh, today. Uh, But two, 
there's been a lack of consistent economic growth um, in, in the economy for the better part of the last 10 years. And so companies are looking beyond their own kind of balance sheets and businesses for sources of growth and, and sources of, you know, maybe faster growth than what they already have. Um, and then finally, valuations are really interesting because in many cases, larger companies are currently valued at a premium to smaller companies. And actually, there's there's quite a bit of research out there indicating that the premium of large relative to small is, is at historic levels. Um, so that divergence in valuations allows a lot of the higher valued large caps to find accretive transactions in small caps just because they have a valuation gap between the, the two. And then finally, I think your comment on private equity is interesting. We've seen a lot of private equity deals take place in the U.S. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the call it 2010 and 2009 vintage private equity funds that were raised following the financial crisis of 08 and 09 to take advantage of, of some of the distressed asset pricing. A lot of those funds are actually coming to the point in their life cycle where they need to start returning capital to investors. So to the extent they can take advantage of valuations in the market today, um, they will, uh, and, and, and they'll take the opportunity to essentially return that capital back to their, their, their investor base. You know, that that's that's some fairly long vintage funds as well because I mean some of these guys are really meant to be hanging on to their their money for five years and uh, but I know that there, there there was a huge capital raise as you say back in 2010 2011 and and a lot of those um, funds have just been sitting on massive amounts of capital. I think usually you get like three years to invest, five years to to hold, and then like two years to harvest or so. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's how I come up with about. 10 years the um the one thing i did want to ask you as well um is um as, as a manager of an active etf um obviously the 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 universe of etfs has been very much on the passive side of the coin and and it's only been recently that we've been seeing more fund managers launching active etfs from your perspective just looking ahead into the future do you think that and certainly the case that is the case in Europe where where we're still the the, the vast amount of 99% of ETFs he said coming up with a number off the top of his head but I'm pretty sure I'm right are passive ETFs but we are we are likely to see more of these coming onto the UK market um onto the European market as well in in the US do you, do you see the active ETF actually becoming the the sort of the senior fund in the end that that although they might be more expensive um, in the end, all the all a lot of the mainstream mutual fund managers are going to go with active ETF structures, just because, as you say, in many respects, it's much more tax efficient. And from an investor's perspective, you know, you can buy and sell an ETF like you can a normal share. So there is that convenience factor as well. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure that I don't really have a great answer for you on passive versus active ETFs, which is going to become more dominant. I think that there's na- there are natural buyers of passive investment vehicles and there are natural buyers of active investment vehicles. I think the real comparison 
is active ETFs versus active mutual funds. And I think we're definitely in the early stages of a pretty considerable transition from active mutual funds to active ETFs. I think there's been some hesitance of mutual fund managers to make the transition, mainly because they've got such great businesses with sticky capital sitting in their current mutual fund vehicles. But if you were to step back and think about um, what makes the most sense for clients and what makes the most sense uh, for the market longer term, um, you would be opening or the, the active mutual fund managers would be opening um, active equity ETF similar to what we're, we're seeing today. And we expect that to pick up pretty considerably. I think the, the comparison between active and passive is just difficult because it really comes down to, you know, are active funds going to outperform passive and what's the, the market perspe- perception of passive investing? I think over the last 20 years, passive has just dominated the capital flows mainly because people see it as um, an easier way to invest. So I I don't have a great answer for you on active versus passive ETFs. I just think that, you know, we're going to see more transition from mutual funds to ETFs. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. And um, just to to finish off your, your, um, the ETF that you're responsible for managing is the True Shares low volatility low volatility equity income ETF, which I believe has the ticker DIVZ. That's correct. Fantastic, and that's um, listed on NYSE. Yep, that's right. Well, thank you very much indeed for for coming on on the show um, this afternoon, our time, this morning, your time, um, to talk about the. Uh, dividend situation in the u.s market and um uh, good luck with everything this year thanks Stuart. you've been listening to the armchair trader podcast make sure you visit our website www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there